you did not see that coming, did you? <laughs> Annie Lennox and the Eurythmics, <laughs> after before the throne of God. That is, I don't know if that's even legal. But there's some wisdom there, right? Like art, all sorts of art express truth. The song goes, sweet dreams are made of this. Who am I to disagree? I travel the world and the seven seas. Everybody's looking for something. And and that really is true, isn't it? Everybody is looking for something, but what we're looking for is usually... Right? It's not usually what we, what we really need. And then this vicious circle kicks in. Like we find it, and then it doesn't satisfy, and then we were like, man, I, I, it's, it's the wrong thing. And we start to look again, and I, I found it. Doesn't satisfy. I mean, this vicious circle. In our text today, the Israelites are looking for an earthly king to satisfy all their needs, but what they really need is to to trust in God as their all-sufficient king. But are are we any different? The question for, for each one of us this morning is this. Who really, who really sits on my throne, right? We all have a throne in our lives, in our hearts, and and we get to, to choose. Can you believe that? We actually get to choose who sits on our throne. Do me a favor, if you haven't already, please open your your Bibles. And if for some reason you don't have a Bible on tables spread around the room here uh, that we use for communion, there's also um, free Bibles. We want you to have God's word in your hands. Um, cell phones tend to help as well because you have Bible apps, most of you do, so you might want to open those as well if that's what you're using. That's great. And let's see who Israel puts on, on the throne of, of their lives. First Samuel chapter 8 and, and verse 1. When Samuel, you remember Samuel from last week. He is, uh, is going to be the last judge, the last priest that Israel will have. He's God's man for such a time as this. Well, he gets, like all of us eventually do, he gets old. And so he appoints his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at, at Beersheba. Um, and this is unfortunate. This is kind of a whole other message, but we're not going to really dive in deep on this this morning. But his sons, they did not follow his ways. And they turned aside after dishonest gain, and um, they accepted bribes, and they... They perverted justice. So verse 4, all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, hey man, you are old and by the way, your sons, they're not very godly. They're not following your ways. Um, so do us a favor. We've been asking for this for a long time. Appoint us a king to lead us um, such as all the other nations have. Verse 6, but when they said that, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. Uh, it is not you they have, 
rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Verse 8, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now, if you haven't uh, been with us for the past few weeks, welcome. It's good to have you. We've been going through a study in the books of First and Second Samuel, the last few weeks, First Samuel. And First Samuel, or basically the, the first part of First Samuel is a, is a story, a bunch of stories of how God's people um, mess up. And I mean really mess up. And so I guess, and some of you are the same way in this room, but I can really relate. Uh, I, I really relate to this really well because I feel like I'm an expert on, on messing up. I'm getting older, I'm getting better, I'm working on it, but I, I tend to, to speak first, right, and, and listen later, or speak first and think later, and so um, I'll, I'll never forget, I was trying to make an impression, I was in this new church in college, and I was living away from home, and I really wanted to impress uh, my new college pastor, and so I walked into a room full of people, just full of people, and as you can imagine, I can be a little loud, I, I struggle with my indoor voice, and um, I walked in, and there was his wife, and I said, ah, how long have you been pregnant? Yeah, I'm that guy. And she didn't let me off the hook. Silence, um, laser-like focus with her eyes. If looks could have killed, I would have been sliced in a couple different pieces. And she says, I'm not. Taking a good situation and messing it up just seems to be one of my giftings. Let me give you one more example. During our first year of marriage, I decided to buy Ruth, my wife. Uh, and thankfully, she's still my wife. I'm, I'm amazed all the time. And uh, uh, I decided to surprise her with an outfit at Christmas that, that I, I would mix and match and accessorize. And I was way, I know, it's crazy. I can barely dress myself. And so I'm like, um, I'm going to do this. And I go to all these different stores and, 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 I, and I, I get different pieces and I bring it all together and I put it in different boxes and she opens up each thing. And I, I should have got the picture, but I didn't. And she, you know, she kept getting more and more depressed as she opened up each thing. And it was all said and done. I gave her something that, that looked like this. Here you go. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I know it was the 80s, but not the 1780s, right? Right? The point is, that's exactly what the Israelites did throughout the entire first part of 1 Samuel. They took God's plan, God's awesome plan, a plan to, to bless them and prosper them and to lead them and to, and to guide them and bring them peace and protection and victory, and they just perpetually messed it up. And here in chapter 8, they, they do it again. You see, for over 300 years, God had been Israel's king. and It was God who had taken them out of Egypt through the, through the wilderness. And it was God who went before them and, and used Moses' servant to part the Red Sea. And not only that, then it was, it was Joshua, right? And they, they, they literally parted the Jordan River. And it was God who brought them into the promised land and gave them victory over all the nations who lived there. And, and it was God that had been a faithful and mighty king for the, the people of Israel over and over again. And you may recall that last week it was God who, and he does this, who forgave them again and gave them victory again over their dreaded enemies, the Philistines. And yet the people of Israel weren't, weren't satisfied. And, and, and why weren't they satisfied? Because they wanted a king they, they could look at. They wanted a king with skin on and all, all the other, I mean, come on, God. All the other nations, well, they had, they had, um, they took orders from, 
um, mighty men of battle, great military leaders who conquered their enemies. And, and Israel took orders from a box made out of acacia wood with covered with gold on top. I mean, we can kind of see the dilemma, right? Nobody wants to be known as the people who take their orders from a box. I, I want like, you know, like we said last week, I want, I want Spartacus. I want, I want some king in armor. I want, you know, that's who I want. And, and if you really thought about it, once a year, the high priest would go into this, this room that was covered with a curtain and then he would, he would sprinkle blood over the top of this box, over the mercy seat, and ask this box to, to forgive them. And, and I, I know the Israelites knew they weren't worshiping a box, but it, it, sure, it sure didn't look that way on the outside. And so basically what the, what the Israelites were telling Samuel was this, we're tired of being weird. We're tired of being different. We're tired of being strange. We just want to be normal like everybody else. And the Bible says that, that Samuel took exception to it because he knew God's heart. But more importantly, the Bible says that, that God took exception to it. Why? This is really important because it was never God's intention for his people to be normal. I mean, never. A word that we see often in the Old Testament that carries over in a different way to the New Testament is that we are a peculiar people. Now, I don't mean peculiar, you know, like we walk around with the big old signs and saying repent or you're going to go to hell or, or we wear period pieces like I bought for Ruth our first year. <laughs> I don't mean that, but we just look and act differently, Right? This is really, really important. God knew, God knew that normal wasn't all that good. In fact, normal is what got the other nations into trouble in, in the first place. And so right from the beginning, God told his people that he didn't, he didn't want them to be normal. He told them that he wanted them to be different. Leviticus chapter 18, go back a little bit, third book of the Bible, Old Testament. And God is bringing this nation up out of the wilderness, so to speak, trying to get them to the promised land. He's laying out a metric, rules of how to live. And Leviticus chapter 18, verse 1, uh, God says to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God, and you must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey uh, my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am, am the Lord. And you're thinking, well, man, that's kind of harsh. Except that uh, their practices were sexual perversion, incest, bestiality, adultery, child sacrifice, and, and the like, even, even more. And so God did not want his people to get even close to resembling normal. He wanted his people to be, to be different, to be peculiar. And yet in every one of those instances, God's people, the Israelites, they chose to be uh, exactly like the Egyptians and exactly like the Canaanites. And because they didn't obey God and rid their land of those evil influences, they got, they got sucked into doing all those things that, that the Canaanites did. And here in chapter 8, we see the Israelites again rejecting God's desire for them to be different. And in doing so, they reject God himself. Verse 7, God says to Samuel, listen to all that the people are saying to you. 
it is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as, as their king. And the scary thing is, the Israelites, they didn't realize that they were rejecting God. Even though Samuel told them that they were, they didn't see it because they, they were so blinded by their own selfish desires. They, they wanted what they wanted when they wanted it, and they weren't going to take no for an answer. Does that re- remind you of anybody? Does that sound a little bit like, like us, a little bit like our, our culture? In our culture, we get what we want the way we want it, and we, we get it immediately. Let me illustrate, personal illustration. I, I was 10 years in uh, central Arkansas, um, North Little Rock, and uh, we had a guy in our church who managed, owned, I don't know how the system works, but a, a Chick-fil-A. And if you're from North Little Rock, you know what I'm talking about. It was a Chick-fil-A, but it was, it was in our mall on the bottom level, back right hand, depending on what direction you came in, corner of our, our mall. Um, and as we were raising our boys, it, it wouldn't have mattered where it was, right? But that's where it was. And so we would drive up to the mall, uh, dad and mom and Levi and Noah, and, you know, begin to sing the, the Chick-fil-A happy song. You've been there. You've done it, right? Just so pumped. And we'd get out of our car. We'd walk like a quarter mile through the mall, down an escalator, and to the back right-hand corner with visions of chicken sandwiches and waffle fries dancing in our heads. And we would go eat Chick-fil-A. But guess what happened? Someone, they, they must have talked about it, the Chick-fil-A people, whoever they are, um, they, they decided to build a Chick-fil-A with a drive through Well, guess what happened? That quarter-mile walk felt like a marathon. And we're like, oh, we're not, even though the guy in my church owns it, I'll lie to him. I'm not going to his Chick-fil-A. I'm driving through. Why? Because I want what I want when I want it. Right? Um. I used to be able to live, at least I, I thought, without my cell phone. Yeah, I was that guy rebuking everyone else who desperately needed their cell phone. And I made fun of people in their addiction to their cell phone until last Sunday night, um, I went to pick up some Italian sausage at Walmart Neighborhood Market. And this is all true story. I got 100 yards down the road and I realized that I had forgot my cell phone. 100 yards, 300 feet. Like out of my driveway, left, barely went right. And I panicked. I panicked, and for the next 100 yards, I convinced myself that I would be okay. You're going to be okay, buddy. And, but thoughts of breaking down and getting stranded, no lie, did enter my mind. Um, but then for the next 100 yards, I had an internal debate. Should I turn around or should I go? But I decided to forge ahead like a pioneer. <laughs> I, you and me, God, and do the 20... Uh, minute round trip without my phone but sadly no lie in the store on numerous occasions I reached for my faux phone oh 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 man and and it wasn't there and when I got back after 20 minutes I immediately checked I checked my phone for all the new calls texts and emails messages that would be there there were none But I picked up my phone, who was safe. Thank you. Thank you, God. No one hurt you while I was gone. And I held it in my hands, cradled it like a little baby, and lovingly assured it that I would never leave you, no, not ever again. You okay back there, buddy? You okay? My point is we Christians, peculiar people, right? We Christians... Um, 
in America are a lot like the Israelites. We, like them, are called to be different, and yet we, like them, often feel the tug on our hearts to forget about being different, to forget about God, God's call on our lives and live like everyone else uh, around us. Let's just have a, a moment of honesty here, okay? Let's just think about this. Wouldn't it be cool to just sleep in on Sunday mornings? You know, catch up on our sleep and then hit the brunch circuit, let's say, like for the rest of our lives, right? Or, or come on, wouldn't it be nice to forsake that weekly pesky community group that always seems to get in the way of something we want to do or something we want to watch? Like, I'm always amazed. I hear this all the time. From 80 to 18, I, I'm not picking on any, any generation. I want community. I need community. I love it. Oh, I got to have it. Church is so big on Sunday. I agree. It's got to come down to community. Oh, I just don't have time. I don't have like two hours during the week. To, I, I wish, I, I, you know, somehow through osmosis I could experience community. Just, just so, I'm so important, right? I'm just so busy, right? Right? God's like, do not forsake the gathering of meeting together or some are what to do, but all the more spur one another on to love and good deeds. You desperately need each other in this battle against the world, the flesh, and the, yeah, I know, but I got soccer practice. And I've been binge watching, been binge watching The Crown. It's kind of like your series, The Throne, The Crown, The Throne, kind of the same thing. Woo, love me some Queen Elizabeth. All right, right? Or wouldn't it be great to, to keep all of our money to ourselves? <laughs> Come, hey, I earned it. It's mine. And by the way, I mean, come on, let's, let's be real honest here. There's so many things that, that I can buy for me. For me. Also, wouldn't it be nice to not have to care about whether or, or not so-and-so is a follower of Jesus? I mean, <laughs> come on. I've got enough pressure on me as it is just dealing with my own stuff, much less to have to worry about somebody else's soul. Please, please, New Heights, enough with the salt and light training. Come on. If I hear one more 1040 window, unreached people grooms, launching missionaries to go to places where they never heard about Jesus, oh, come on. I've got enough to worry about just thinking about uh, me. And we're all infected with this. You've heard me say this before, I'll say it again. I think it's 20 years now, wow. 20 years ago, Rick Warren, a pastor from Saddleback, Saddleback Church in Southern California, writes a book called The Purpose Driven Life. The opening line was, it's not about you. And back then, half my congregation came to me and they're like, it's not. What is this new foreign sentence that has been given to me? I've not ever seen this before. And I was right there. Now, I'm not saying that you're like that or I'm like that, but the temptation is always there and there's a dangerous, this is a dangerous place for us because what's really happening, um, and man, the devil and our flesh and our world culture is so seductive, right? What's really happening when we begin to feel that way is that we're starting to reject God, but here, here's the, the end around Here's what we do. It's, I love this. It's the bait and switch. We're starting to reject God, but here's what we do. It's the church. Oh, you mean, I don't know. 
the thing that God said the gates of hell should not prevail against, that's filled with sinful, imperfect people that he uses to fight the end? Yes, the church. It's the pastor. My family. <laughs> it's my family. Man, the victim game is so fun, isn't it? Because it's never my fault. Like ever. It's beautiful. We're not rejecting a church or a pastor or our parents. Here's the subtlety. We're rejecting God. And the devil just giggles. That's what I want. I love it. And the scary thing is, just like the Israelites, sometimes we don't realize what we're doing. You know, it's kind of a slow fade. Like you, you wake up and you go, how, what, how did I get here? So, um, and, and I'm at the top. I need this desperately. There are three life lessons that I want to pull uh, from the text that hopefully will help us uh, to course correct, uh, to think differently, and, and to not live in that cycle, that pattern that the Israelites lived in. So first life lesson is this. Um, we need not assume that there's a better way than God's way. So, again, uh, God had been Israel's king. And as long as Israel followed, this is what's always amazing to me, God's commands, that, like he blessed them. Not imperfection. He knew they would stumble and fall, but he blessed them. In fact, it's interesting. They never, this is so fascinating to me. They never lost one battle that God told them to fight and that God went before them. You can't find it. Like if God was in it, they never lost. Like if they beseeched God, begged God, cried out to God, repented of their sins and said, God, please take us, take us back. Okay. They never lost. When God told them to walk around the walls of Jericho for seven days, that's crazy. They did, and the walls fell, fell, fell down on the seventh day. I mean, like military strength couldn't, like, what accomplishes that, God? And God did countless other miracles on, on behalf of the, of the Israelites as well. And as long as they followed God's orders, they won. They were undefeated. And yet, even though, even though Israel knew that, they wanted to be normal. So they asked for a, a normal king, and, and God gave it to them. Let's just go ahead a little bit. Jim will cover more of this in detail in the weeks to come, but 1 Samuel 12 and, and verse 12. No, 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 no. We get it. We always win when you're Forget that. We want a king to rule over us, and even though the Lord, um, even though the Lord your God was your king, now here is the king you have chosen, the one you've asked for. See, uh, the Lord begrudgingly has set a king <clears throat> over you. And that normal king um, that they asked for was, well, Normal. I mean, he may have shining teeth and a shiny crown and, you know, great armor. <laughs> Just normal. And Israel used to be guaranteed a victory when God led them in the battle, but they traded their unconquerable king willingly for one that was beatable. And yet, they thought they would be better their way than God's way. And, and any time, I'm going to say this twice, I think it's really important. Anytime we start to feel like the grass is greener on the other side of God's will, write it down, personalize it. I'm in trouble. Anytime I start to think the grass is greener on the other side of God's will, I'm in trouble. 
I'm out like big trouble. And this happens to us in many areas of our lives. We get delusioned by how we want things to be to the point where we're willing to go against God, uh, what God has said in order to make those things happen. For example, sometimes as married people in this room, we see a person of the opposite sex, maybe at work, maybe the neighborhood, maybe wherever, I don't know. And we think this, I wish I had them instead of my spouse. Now God has said, God, he said, Lee, you are to be, to be faithful to your own spouse and you are to love and honor and cherish her and lay down your life for her. But we think, eh, that's not what I want. It would be better for me to love and honor and cherish another person than my own spouse. And in that moment, we have just said that the grass is greener on the other side of God's will. In other words, life is better on the other side of God's will when I choose what I want, what I do. Well, we need to let that sink in. It would be like me saying, can you imagine? Um, hey, God, I, I know I made a covenantal commitment to Ruth when we got married. I made it to you. I made it to her. I made it to witnesses. But I think I want to try someone new. I think I know better than your plan, God, when it comes to my, my marriage. Or worse. And this is becoming uh, more and more prevalent in our culture. If I had a nickel for every time I've heard this now from, from believers... This is, this is like the hot new thing, right? They say this, um, well, I know the Bible says it's wrong, but I think it'll be okay if I do it. Like, hey, 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 all the Egyptians and all the Canaanites and all of Hollywood and all my professors, they're all doing it. It's normal. You think I'm supposed to be peculiar? I know God says don't, but man, I, I want to. And so what we're saying is, I think I'll be better off doing what God says don't do. In essence, we're doing the same thing that the Israelites did. Now, I would just say this, if God saw it as a rejection of him when they did it, how do you think he feels about it when, when we do it? First life, life lesson um, that we pull from our text is we don't want to assume that there's a better way than, than God's way. Second life lesson is that we need to let go of control and, and truly trust in God. First Samuel chapter 8, verse 5, um, now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. In verse 7, the Lord Lord told him, listen uh, to all that the people are saying to you. Is it not, pardon me, it is not you they have rejected, but they've rejected, don't take it personal, Samuel, but it's, it's all about me. They've rejected me. For a second there, I thought to myself, so what was wrong with their demand? And then it hit me, and I want you to see this, Chad. Their desire for an earthly king exhibited a complete lack of trust in, but this is more important, and satisfaction with God. God God wasn't enough. You know, just imagine that with your, 
your spouse, your parents, your whatever, your family. I, yeah, I, I like you to a certain extent, but you're just not, Ruth, you're just not really enough. I mean, you're kind of enough, but not enough. God was supposed to be their real king. They were supposed to depend on him for everything. But from the very beginning, he had never been enough for them. They never trusted him enough to say this, God, I'm just, I'm just going to do your will, and I'll let you worry about everything else. No, no, no. They had constantly, well, they demanded a golden calf and strong armies and a, and a guaranteed food and water source and safe land conditions to feel secure. They had, they had never rejected God outright. They'd always said, God, yes, we want you, but we also, well, we need a guarantee, kind of a contract of certain things to make us feel secure. There are two ways to reject God. One is to reject him outright. That's pretty common, right? But the other is to say, um, is to say that we follow him, but then not really depend on him, and then insist on a number of other things uh, to be present in our lives before we'll actually feel secure. Do we have that problem too? I, I mean, isn't it easier to trust God when everything that we feel like we need for life right now is in front of us? Like, a job is is secure. Our marriage is fulfilling. Uh, everyone is healthy, but when one of those things is missing, don't we have this feeling of insecurity or, or anxiety or, or un, unhappiness? Israel is not content to trust God, so what they feel like they need, um, what they need is something they can get their hands on and control. I mean, wouldn't it be easier to trust God if we could just control him? But, but we can't. And so we have a list of requirements that we demand in addition to God. God, I'll follow you, but um, these other things, well, I require as well. And and God says that 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 kind of life is is a rejection of him because it's a rejection of trust in him. You may recall... Um, that we went through the book of Hebrews. And and you might remember this verse. It's really powerful. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. And without faith. Notice the word, the next word that the author uses. Like we don't like that word, right? And it's impossible to please him. Well, that's not true. I I can kind of sort of have some faith, a little faith, not really trust him completely, but just enough to get me to heaven and get my kids to heaven or whatever, um, but not have complete faith. No, 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 no. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe faith because you haven't seen him, right? Must believe that he exists, faith, and that he rewards, well, faith, because if you haven't seen him, you're trusting a God you haven't seen to reward you. Uh, those who earnestly seek him, faith, faith, faith. To really know God, we have to trust him. Israel wants a king they can see and touch and control because they don't, they don't trust God. And this is a, a rejection of God because God should be trusted. I, can you do me a favor? Just reflect for a moment before we move on. I'll put a question up behind me. Okay? What do we require in addition to God to feel secure and happy and fulfilled? Because you know, like, when you don't trust somebody, you try and control the situation. 
You know that, right? It's like, like when you don't trust your, your spouse or your friends, and it's not that I don't trust you, but just let me do it. Or you better do it my way. Or you, you better add this. Oh, it's like your kids, you know, to a certain extent, I get it. You've got to micromanage your kids to a certain extent. But little by little, you're raising them up in the admission of Jesus to push them out of the nest to experience their own faith journey, right? Uh, but if you do it so much so that, that you don't trust them, what do you do? You control them. And all of a sudden, they're like, I, I don't know what to do because I've been controlled my whole life. What do we require in addition to God to feel secure and happy and fulfilled? Let me put it this way. Um, what are we working to obtain? What are we most worried about losing? What are we hanging on to? Uh, whatever these things are, we're going to unpack this here in a second. These are the things that become our king. You're like, I'm so angst-ridden. I've got the weight of the world on my shoulder. That's your king. That's not King Jesus. We'll talk about that. Last life lesson. Um, We have to serve. This is just a truism in life, right? In the words of Bob Dylan, we got to serve somebody, right? Uh, I'm very pragmatic. Why not God? Why not? The Israelites, they begged for an earthly king. By the way, um, we have to be careful what we ask for. God is, he's amazing. I just love him so much. He's like, you're not robots. I won't do that to you. Who wants to be in a relationship where you have no say, right? And you're like, God, I want this, and I want this, and I, you're not going to tell. Uh, okay. I'm going to marry this. Well, I don't know if they know Jesus. I don't care. I'm going to do. Uh, okay. Um, I'll give you what you want. I'll let you have it. And this is what happens here. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 9. Um, he responds. Now listen to them, he says. But warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words, verse 10, of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. And he said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. Here we go. Um, He's going to take your sons. Whoa. And he'll make them serve with his chariots and horses. And they will run in front of his chariots. They'll be like infantrymen. And they'll get stampled and trampled and crushed and killed and you know that's just what you got to do and he'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers like in his kingdom and his mansion and his castle whatever you want to call it they're going to go with him Um, and he'll take the best of your fields and vineyards your way primarily to eat and make a living and all that good stuff and olive groves and he'll he'll take them for himself but also give them to his attendants his best buddies and then he'll take a tenth of your grain on top of all that and of, of, your, of your vintage and um, he'll give it to his officials and attendants as well he'll take a tenth of your flocks man these tenths are adding up aren't they <laughs> You're like man what's going on here and uh, uh, and you yourselves will become his slaves underline that and when that day comes oh it'll come it'll come you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So what's our takeaway from these verses? One sentence, when we have other kings besides God, those kings will oppress us. 
The dominant word in these verses is take. The king will take your sons and daughters. He'll take your crops and lands in the best years of your lives, and he'll exploit them for himself. The irony here is unbelievable. You look to a king to guarantee you prosperity and security, and then when you got a, a king who took those things from you, right, you got, you got yourself your king. He then steals them from you. You wanted a king whom you could control. Instead, the king ends up controlling you. This is an, this is an Old Testament version of a New Testament principle. Whatever we depend on for happiness and security, we become the slave of. Let me say it again. Whatever we depend on for happiness and security, we become the slave of. If we have to be married to be happy, we become the slave of marriage. And you're like, man, my whole life I wanted to be married, and, and it's going to be great, it's going to be perfect, and, and I'd be a king, and she'd be a queen, and oh, she's just not meeting my needs. And she's like, I can't meet your needs. And I'm like, I can't meet your needs. And I feel enslaved. And what happens? If we have to have marriage to be happy and we're not married, then we feel miserable all the time. Because Jesus isn't our king, marriage is our king. And if you're not married, you're like, I'm miserable. And you become a slave to not being married. Or you become a slave to marriage because once you get married, you're like, it's not what I thought. If we have to be successful to find fulfillment, then we become a slave of success. Here's what happens. We overwork and we get jealous of anyone else who has success. And sometimes, here's what they say about type A people. They say this, and I quote, they are driven by success. A better way to say that might be um, they are enslaved by success. If we just have more stuff, we'll be happy. But we all know that having stuff is never enough, and it just leads to wanting more stuff, and then we become a slave to stuff. And you know that. Like some, some of you, you walk into your garage, and it's just filled with decades, maybe even years, of stuff. And you're like, <laughs> I'm a slave or debt. I'm just a slave, and oh. Whatever we demand for happiness, we become the slave. We become the slave of. I think you, you see where I'm going. All of us have a king. A king in our life is whatever we must have to be happy and secure. And whatever that is, we become the slave of. Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 8. It's a New Testament book. He says, formerly, when you didn't know God, you were slaves. I mean, you were, you were slaves. And you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. In other words, we're going to serve something. We're either enslaved to something that brings life, God, or we're enslaved to something that brings death. Everything. I mean everything else. So, um, let's wrap this up. Chapter, chapter 8 ends with God uh, warning them what will happen if they, they get a king. They demand one anyway. In the next few chapters, God gives them exactly what they're asking for. And in chapter 9, he gives them a king named Saul. Saul is, is everything they had asked for. And kind of a bonus too, right? right? He's good looking. He's tall. You know? Ladies, you're like, man, I just want a godly man who loves and cherishes me. And God, it could be a bonus if he's tall and good looking too. Just throw that in, right? Please. Right? They get that. 
And he's smart. He's a good leader. And, and he's promised them change and peace and success and prosperity. And for a while, it's, man, it's all going so, it's all, it's all going so good. He does exactly what um, God said he would do and, and, and initially, right? And he brings them that initial surge, right? The economy's good. But then, well, he does what people with absolute power do. He starts to use the people. He turns out to be, imagine that, a, a self-idolizing, self-willed, power-hungry tyrant. So, is this the, the end of the story? No, no, no. This is, man, I love the gospel. I love how the word of God just all weaves beautifully together. Saul is being, it's a setup. He's being set up in contrast to God's true king. Jesus. It's like I told you at the beginning of our series, we can never read these, these stories in, in isolation. That is, there are lots of similarities and contrasts between King Saul's life and King Jesus' life. In chapter 10, when Saul was anointed as king, it says, this is amazing, he was filled with the Spirit, and he starts to, to prophesy things. And, but when Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit, he descended from, from heaven like a dove, and Jesus began to speak with the, the voice of God. He began to prophesy with the, the voice of God. But here's the contrast. Saul started well. Jesus would end well. Faithful unto death. Saul thought of his own interests. Jesus thought primarily of ours. Saul made Israel his servants. Jesus said this, the son of man has come not to be served. What, what kings do this but to serve? Saul's sinful, selfish choices would cause many people in Israel to die. Jesus' loving choices would cause many to live. Israel had to die for Saul's sins, but Jesus would die for ours. Saul was harsh and unforgiving with those who disappointed him, but Jesus, when Jesus' subjects disappointed and rebelled against him, he laid down his life for them. They longed for a king, and they had such high hopes, such high hopes for him, sad because Saul would fail, but God in his grace would send one who, who didn't fail. You see, Jesus, God in the flesh, was the king they were seeking. He alone could satisfy and save. Please, please hear this. Every king says, just obey me and please me and I'll guarantee you happiness. Money says, find me and I'll make you happy. Marriage says that. So does family and success and fame. Every king also says, but if you disappoint me, I'll make you miserable. You disappoint me. I'll enslave you. Pastor and author Timothy Keller put it this way. I think it's great. As usual, everything he says. He says, Jesus is the only king that if we obtain him, he'll satisfy us. And whom if we fail him, he'll forgive us. Everybody is looking for something. But only Jesus truly satisfies. All of Israel's heart were longing for Saul, longing for a king. What they were looking, though, was and could only be found in Jesus. 
Here's the question. How about you? What is your heart longing for? And who? Who sits on the throne of your heart? One of the greatest church fathers, I don't know if you can rank him, I don't think that's kosher, but if you could, um, was Augustine. And he said this about God. He said, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. You have made us, O God of the universe, King Jesus, lover of our souls. You have made me for you until my heart finds you. I'll be enslaved to everything else. My heart is restless. And then Jesus said this, come. What kings do this? What kings say this? Come to me, Lee. Come to me, New Heights. All you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. As a matter of fact, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And this is what my yoke is. It's gentle. It's humble. And when you take my yoke, you'll find rest in your souls. Why? Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do me a favor. As we finish this morning, just just bow your heads here for a few minutes. I'm going to encourage you, even as you're bowing there, I'm going to encourage you as the the prayer team comes up as well to to think about be examining your heart, to take communion. We have communion tables all over the sanctuary, up front on the sides in the back. I'm going to encourage you to be examining your heart and, and start getting excited about what it means to go go to the communion table and celebrate Jesus' body that was broken and blood that was spilled as a sacrifice, a kingly sacrifice for us. It's a reminder, beautiful reminder, wow, kings don't do this. But King Jesus did. And even before you do that or while you do that, I want you to think about this. If If you're here and you know and love Jesus, but maybe... Just maybe you've set up other things as kings in your lives and they've enslaved you. Release that this morning. Let it go. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your, your, your job. Maybe, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's some addiction and this is part of the process of releasing, of Jesus breaking those chains because only King Jesus can break those th- other things you've made kings. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I don't, I don't know Jesus. And today is what, what the Bible calls might be the day of salvation for you, where you release those, those despots, those tyrannical kings in your life, and you, you give your life to King Jesus. And you say, King Jesus, forgive me. I, I'm a sinner. I've, I've placed other kings above you, and I'm relinquishing those, and I'm putting my heart and my faith and my trust in you. You're now the king of my life. Father, we are so grateful for the cross. We're so grateful.
for a king who willingly suffered and died and was hung on a cross for our sins. We're so grateful for a king who stooped to wash our feet, who died to cleanse our souls, who carries our burdens and gives us a yoke of gentleness and meekness and humility and freedom. I pray today, Father, would be the day of renewal for your children, of salvation, for salvation for potential men and women who are going to come into your kingdom this morning. We commit this to you, putting you on the throne of our lives and nothing or anybody or anything else. We ask it in Jesus' name.